Okay, it's great to be back this week. Um, we are actually going to start, just to let you know where we're going, next week we'll be starting back in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I do uh, recommend, it would be really a neat thing if this week you read the first four chapters of John and just started kind of your new year off in the book of John. So I'd encourage you to do that for next week and in general just for your devotional life. Um, this week we are looking at Hebrews 12. Uh, something I've sort of enjoyed doing when I can every year, I try to do it every year, is a sermon that's dealing with New Year's resolutions. And often I joke about New Year's resolutions. I think a lot of you joke about them. A lot of you take them very seriously. Uh, this morning we're taking them seriously. We're going to actually think about the fact that our culture offers us a liturgy. That is, every year uh, we, we start over and we have this kind of lull, and we can think about our last year, and we can think about our next year. And so I'm just encouraging us to do that this morning in light of what we're going to learn from Hebrews chapter 12. That's what we're going to look at this morning. This will be a one-off discussion from a very important chapter in the Bible, uh, Hebrews. Um, I don't have a plan anytime soon to work all the way through the letter of Hebrews. So this morning will be just a quick touch on the, on the book of Hebrews. We don't, um, just to kind of let you know what's happening in this passage, it's toward the end. It, this is really a sermon of sorts where the preacher is encouraging a very discouraged group of people. They've gone through a lot of hardship, a lot of um, just, they've lost property, they've lost so many things in their life, a lot of hardship, and, and they're being coming discouraged. And so they're being reminded of the truths of the gospel. And in chapter 11, it's this famous chapter called the Hall of Saints. Many people refer to it that way, where the, where the writer, the preacher tells us that by faith, and he begins to name all of the, or many of the Old Testament figures who have gone before and how by faith they walked with Christ. And then we get to chapter 12, and it's a very famous um, response that many of you have even memorized. So we'll read it together now and discuss how maybe this would help us think through, and I've titled the sermon, How Big Are Your Resolutions? So are you ready? You're going to sit there and you're going to read a lot of the Bible for a few moments. Here we go. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that is the witnesses from chapter 11. Okay, that's those that have already gone before us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the, author, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not res yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we often are so tired. Life is busy. This world is broken. As we've already sang, Lord, we know that though we are redeemed, we know that we're also struggling in this fallen world with fallen bodies. And yet we look longingly, even to a new year, to find hope, to find restoration, to find redemption. And I pray that these words this morning, this, this short discussion might be a, an encouragement that your spirit would remind us of the power of the gospel to lift us up and to love those around us for your glory. Amen. So New Year's resolutions are tricky. Um, I think I gave them up years ago. How many of you do resolutions? Shane. Just two. And Christian, Shane and who else? That's it? Okay, what's your resolution? You're the only one who raised your hand. You gotta tell us your resolution now. Oh, well, we're not gonna get to know Shane anymore. Uh, no more social media. So it was nice, nice seeing you. Um, that's a good one. I actually think that's a pretty healthy resolution. Uh, I'll, I'll wait till 2020 to make that one. We, we know this though. Everyone in this room, we're laughing. What we know about ourselves is this. At the end of 2019, you will look back and you will have changed. Something, many things will have gone well, and many things will have gone poorly. Jobs will change, economic situations will change, health will change, relationships will change. We are a people in flux, and we know that. 
And so I think it's actually a very healthy thing to take stock and to look at our life and to say what things ought to change. And that's what drew me. I was actually meditating on this chapter during this week while we were away, and I thought this is really a very good place in Scripture to think about change. The writer tells us to, uh, to, to lay aside every weight and, and, to, and the sin which entangles us, and so we need to be aware of what are those things. And what I want you to hear is this. God is changing you. The gospel is growing you. God wants you to be the best version of yourself, like a glorious version of you. That's his love for you. That's his goal for you. So our challenge is to believe that. Our challenge is to come along and join in that process. So I'm inviting us to do that this morning. Uh, and we're going to look at three things. I'm not going to tell you them all up front. I'm just going to start with this. The first thing that you have to understand in order to become the best version of yourself in Christ is that you exist in a story. Like you exist in a narrative, okay? The, listen to what the, the preacher tells us here in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people who are part of a story, let us also, like they did, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The assumption is this, you are in a race. You are part of a race, a narrative of life. Do you believe that? Like, how do you, what, how do you think about yourself? What is your self-awareness like when you think about your goals, your dreams, your hopes? What are the posters on your actual wall or your proverbial wall? The magazines you would lay on your coffee table to keep you focused on what you want? Now, toward the end of the passage, I want to just read the last few verses for a moment. We'll come back to them later. But he tells us what those posters should look like. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Listen to this. He, he, you are part of this huge throng. And in verse 23, um, he goes on to say, and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, who judges you wholly because of Christ, right? Now this God who's over all things and to the spirits of the righteous who are made perfect, I mean, this doxology is just pouring out. Listen to verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, a better word than the blood of Abel. In chapter 11, he begins by talking about the spilled blood of Abel and how it speaks to the, from the ground. And now he's closing that beautiful picture out in chapter 12 by saying, Jesus' blood is better. That's your story. That's the grand arc, the grand narrative. Now, where do you fit? I remember as a child, and I've, I've shared this before, um, watching movies. All, this has happened a lot where you watch these movies with chase scenes. And, and chase scenes can get really annoying because each one tries to outdo the one before. But you know that scene where, uh, where the, the hero and the person after the hero are either running or they're on bikes, or if it's Jason Bourne, they're driving tiny little cars or motorcycles. But they inevitably hit that poor person with a cart. You know what I'm talking about? That poor person. Like, I'm a cart person. I have fruit. That's what I do. I woke up. 
I brushed my teeth, I had my breakfast, I got dressed, and I don't know what order, and I went out and I got my cart and I put it where it goes, and I'm just trying to make a living. And there comes Jason Bourne and destroys it and bananas are flying everywhere. And I, as a child, I, I would get stuck on that poor person, like, what about them? Like, what was their day like? What's happening for them after this plate glass is broken or the painting is ripped? And um, it's just a kind of an interesting thought. And yet at the end of the story, when the credits roll, they're in there. Person with banana cart. They're in there. And that's what, he, that's what chapter 11 tells us. You're in there. Like, you're part of the story. Do you believe that? And so as we move into this idea of what would be some resolutions based on that, you can't even begin to ask what resolutions you should have. What weights should I begin to ask the Lord to remove from me until I first fully believe and recognize that my story is part of the grand narrative? John Calvin in his Institutes talks about how when Christ comes in the New Testament, it offers us a set of lenses by which to read the Old Testament. We now like the, you know, the road to Emmaus where Jesus is explaining to these disciples, they don't recognize him, but he's explaining to them all the ways the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. That is your job as you've been engrafted into the body of Christ by the adoption of his son, you are now to re-examine your story. You are to re-examine what is true of you. Your life didn't begin at conversion. Your life still began at birth. And all of the things that have happened to you, God uses and is present in even the difficult, dark areas to inform who you are. What is your calling? What are you called to do in this life? What banana cart do you get to enjoy and control? That is the, what we are trying to see is as we come to this chapter, we are trying to see that we are grafted into this great assembly, but in this time before that, we are in a time of discipline, a time of challenge, a time where we are facing our own struggles, our own sins, and the brokenness of this world. But if we begin to try to set goals and resolutions without that future vision, which is actually present vision, then it won't work. So, that's your story. You've been brought in. Now let's talk about identifying the weights. Um, <clears throat> I'm really going to hone in mostly on the first few verses of this chapter, but I will jump around a little bit. But he says, therefore, again, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So again, the point that, the, that this preacher is making is we are in a race, we have a story, we have a life we're leading, and invariably certain things have come along that weigh us down. And I think one of the challenges is, is asking yourself, what are those things? Like, what, what is your list of weights? And I want to kind of challenge you in this because I think most of us carry in our conscience a few sin patterns that we just kind of know Maybe that one day, someday, God will remove or will work on. And I want to encourage you to keep working on those. Pray about those. But I want to also try to press you a little bit to think about, are, is there possibly some other blind spots and sin patterns that I'm not aware of that would maybe help 
if I could grab, gravitate toward seeing those fall away, then they would also help with these other ones I'm already aware of. Does that make sense? No? My wife's like, not really. She's like, no. See, one of my sin patterns is I have to ask my wife, how's my sermon going in the middle of the sermon? Okay, let me try to, here's how I'm going to, what I'm saying is weighted down by my flesh that maybe some of the surface sins I'm already aware of will actually fall away in a different way than, I'm, than going right at them. That's what we're going to work on. Okay, so let's see if this works. Here's what I want you to talk about. Christopher Robin. Who saw Christopher Robin? Golly, it's such a good movie. I, re- I highly recommend Christopher Robin. So we watched it this week. Uh, I think I cried like, se- it was embarrassing. Like, I'm, it's, I'm watching it with my daughters and my wife. Coleman, were you watching it? No. So it's just women, precious, lovely women. And I'm crying the whole time. And I'm like shielding myself as I'm crying. Here's the premise. Christopher Robin as you know, in Winnie the Pooh, the story is by A.A. A. Milne. He's the son. And, and, and so he's this little boy in the Hundred Acre Wood with Winnie the Pooh and all his friends. Well, the story is he's grown up. He's moved to London. That's behind him. That's his past. And he's become kind of this really boring, sad, married-to-work father and husband. And so his wife and daughter want him, and they want his renewed, you know, energies and excitement, but really they just wanted to go on vacation. So they're going to go on holiday to, I guess, the place where he grew up near the Hundred Acre Wood, and his, and his company's going through turmoil, and the, the boss's son says, no, you can't go. We're, all, we're all, all hands on deck this weekend. So he has to deliver that news to his wife and daughter, and they're heartbroken. And so they're creating this, you know, this plot built on, you're an adult now. Like, life is no longer fun. So they go off to the Hundred Acre Woods, and I, I, I think I, somehow Winnie the Pooh finds his way into Christopher Robin's house now, and it's starting to make a mess. And anyway, um, I won't give it all away, but it, they re, start to re-engage. He and this little stuffed bear, make-believe bear, is talking to him, and they begin to talk, and they begin to engage and you can just see the, like the blood coming back through the veins and Christopher Robbins becoming like who he was. They go, he goes back into the woods, or the wood, if it was Abby talking. And he's back there and he sees Tigger and he sees Eeyore and he sees all of his friends. And then they, they become scared of him because he's huge and they think that he's a humphalump. And so he has to go and pretend to be this make-believe character he made up as a child, and through this process, he's revived. Like, he's renewed. He's back to who he was. The music has come on again. Like, as you're watching it, you're just like, yes, like, have we lost that connection to that beauty and that freedom? Where is that in our passage? Is that what you're asking? Anyone asking that question? I'll show you where that is. The, the audience to which the Hebrew preacher is writing have become to question, have, be, have begun questioning faith. Right? What is the essence of faith? You can't see God. And they can see heartache. They can see disaster. They can see problems. And they can't see God. If you look at verse 18, and it's, it's, this is absolutely astonishing. For you have not come to what may be touched. 
He's reminding them, don't think that you have come to a religion that you can touch. That's where we struggle. Every one of your sins, I actually wrote a quote. Let me see if I, I wrote this down. My words, I just want to get them right. Most of the sins we struggle with are an attempt to draw from the physical world that which we can only get from God. So they are looking to the physical world. And he's, re- he's reminding them that's what they did in the Old Testament. Verse 18. Remember them? They went to this blazing fire and darkness. And remember how it scared them? Gloom and fear and this trumpet that they were even saying, look, no further messages. And, and Sinai was so dangerous in quotes. It says, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And then in verse 21, indeed, it was so terrifying that the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. You and I think we want God in the physical. And most of the sins you struggle with, the most of the sins we deal with are our attempts at finding something physical that will show us God. And that's not the way it's going to work. And so, in this passage, the writer is saying it's by faith. Now, why do we do that? Why do we go to physical things? What does he tell us? There's this interesting transition that happens in the early verses. He says, to lay aside your weight, to lay aside the sin that clings so closely, right? And then in verse 3, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And then it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? We equate the discipline of the Lord with with sin. In other words, let me try to rephrase that. Oftentimes, the reason we don't fight and run the race is because the moment there's trouble, the moment sin reveals to us that we are broken, what do we do? We turn to other things because we hate discipline. We are a people who feels like discipline is all bad. And the gospel comes and says, no, no, no. Actually, you have it all wrong. Discipline is glorious. Have you ever seen the Gatorade commercial with Serena Williams? Anyone see that? Like, can you imagine walking up to someone and saying, hey, you want to get better at tennis? You have to put this thing on your mouth and get, like, scans. Like, no one wants to do that except a really good tennis player, right? Now, I, if I started playing tennis, and I don't. I know the Hill family plays tennis. If I were to play tennis and I was talking to the Hills, they would say, look, just grab a racket, grab some tennis shoes, and get on the court. That's all I would need to start tennis. But if you're really, really, really good at tennis... Apparently, according to Gatorade, you need like all these contraptions and and computer measurement tools and, and things like that because she's really, really good. And the point is this. Her love of the game is such that she puts herself into positions of difficulty to get better. But most of us think of Christianity as, and life in general, as I'm trying to avoid pain. I'll take my tennis shoes. I'll take my racket. And I'll take those balls and I'll go out and just do what I can. And what, what the gospel has called us to do is to engage into pain and difficulty. 
Isn't that good news? That's your calling. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that wonderful? So, what are the sins that you need to think about? I'm going to just tell you two thoughts on that and not get into the details. One is this. What, is this, what are the things you're escaping from? Well, how do you escape from pain? If you were going to go away from this sermon and actually ask yourself, let me try to apply this. What are the painful things you avoid? That's one thought. That's one list. Okay? What is it? People that are hard to deal with. I don't want to talk to that person who's going through that issue. I don't even want to think about this justice thing. I don't want to talk about, you know, what are the things you avoid? And then secondly, how? Right? Shane is getting rid of social media. Almost all of us medicate ourselves with social media. We're not on social media to look for justice issues. We're on there to just kind of get out of our current moment, right? There's alcohol, there's shopping, there's a million ways you and I avoid the pain of this world. And what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do is to go right in to the difficulty. Okay, where is that? Our last point, the process. The first point is you're in a race. The second point is, therefore, you got to throw off the weights and the struggles. And the third point is now we're going to talk about how to do that. And he tells you, again, in these first verses, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, what he is telling you and I is that rather than doing what the world would do and say you improve yourself and you get better and you get better and you get better and then someday you're worthy to be a Christian. The, The gospel tells you you are already a Christian. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Jesus went to the cross. You have died. You have raised. Do you believe that? That's why at the end of the passage, I want to reiterate, he says, you have already come. This is not a future tense. It sounds future. You are presently, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, not you will come. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he just paints this picture of the reality of heaven that is your current story. But then he tells you the past tense, right? You have come to a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood. When did that happen? At the cross. It's past tense. But they're both present tense for you and I. You are now in Christ. And what does he say to do? Imitate Jesus in how you move into painful things. That's the discipline. Um, I've talked a lot about John 13, but I think it's important to bring up again. I'm just fascinated. In John 13... Uh, that's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It's a living parable. And, and the reason I'm fascinated by it is um, I think we all can relate to that setting, that setting where there's a group of people and you're kind of wondering what's happening and it feels really important and there's a problem and someone's got to fix the problem. And the problem is there's no one to wash the feet and everybody knows it. Everyone in the room knows the next thing we're supposed to do 
is kind of have a ceremonial washing of our feet. Who's going to get up and do it? And you know there's like a pecking order issue going on. You, you see in other Gospels where, the, where James and John's mother says, can they sit at each of you, know, to Jesus, can they sit at your right and your left hand? And he says, woman, you, you don't know what you're asking. So you know that in that setting, Peter's probably like, I'm not doing it because I'm the most important. Like maybe it should be like Matthias. Like no one knows that guy. Like none of you know that guy. He's in the room. Okay, so there's this pecking order. And guess who stands up? The one who knows his story. The one who knows he's holy. The one who knows he's loved. That's what John tells us, right? In John 13, Jesus stands up. Of course he stands up because he's Jesus. Of course he stands up because he's teaching them. I'm not, but the reason he can stand up and nobody else can is he is not consumed with vanity. He's not consumed with the fear of man. He's not consumed with how is this going to make me look? Is this going to lower my status among my disciples? I love it because in John 13, as he's telling us the story, he almost interrupts himself several times. And here's what he says in verse 3. Jesus, comma, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. And listen, ready? Knowing from where he came and knowing where he's going. Knowing where he came from and knowing where he's going. He was able to stand up and move into a dark situation. And then he tells them when he resumes his seat, you know why I did this for you? Because this is what your life's going to look like. So, your New Year's resolution is going to be moving in toward pain and difficulty, standing on the neck of evil because of what Jesus has done in your life. Isn't that exciting news? If we want to see this world change, that's how it's going to happen. At the very back of um, Bold Love, a book by Dan Allender, is this quote. If Christ had practiced the kind of love, and you could say Christianity, that we advocate, we being the modern church, Nowadays, he would have lived to a ripe old age. And that's what we all want. That's the weight. That's the sin. You are currently in eternity now. If you are a Christian, you are currently enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are just simply on a vacation. Peter tells us you are living as strangers here. Your citizenship's already set. Let's live like that. Let's set resolutions like that for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we are overwhelmed by the freedom and the beauty of the gospel, so much so that we cloud it with shadows and physical things that we can touch. Lord, we long for the physical. You love the physical. But Lord, only when it's you. And in heaven, we will see you face to face. We will feast with you with true wine and true bread and with the Lamb of God. And so, Lord, we praise you for those things you've given us this side of heaven to point to you. But teach us, Lord, to not turn them into idols. Teach us to walk with you and long for you. Lord, teach us through the power of your Spirit to notice when we're avoiding hard things and to be filled with courage and move toward those things, those people, those situations. Will you revive us this year?
Amen.